Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Episode 88, A Small Dot on the Horizon, Syria, where Johan went to counter prejudice. Can you describe your appearance? My physical appearance? Okay. Uh, Today, or generally speaking? (laughs) How about both? Okay. Today, I came just from the camp, from the refugee camp where I work. So I'm wearing uh, quite robust sort of like hiking shoes, kind of. I stupidly put on black jeans and a black (laughs) t-shirt. Because I wear this white vest usually when I'm in, in the camp, so it didn't like seem so weird in the mirror this morning. But now I just realized that it's more practical issue because it's so hot. It's so hot. Today. Yeah, yeah. It's like into yeah. October and it's yeah. so hot. For, for a Scandinavian person, it's weird to be here in the middle of like, uh, well, beginning of October even, and it's so hot. Um, other than that, I think I'm like, I think I have quite a masculine appearance in many ways. Like, I, I like. I'm not. I'm, I would never be described as camp, yeah. but then at the same time, like pretty like average height, a little bit above average height, maybe. Uh, always have a small beard, like trimmed um, glasses. I think that would be yeah. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Would, is that and generally? That's yeah, general? that would be my general gotcha. sort of okay. like yeah. The second would be like my general appearance, I think. Yeah, like I think people might describe me as like slightly scruffy, okay. but without necessarily being like really scruffy. And that's always, not just yeah. in the camp. Yeah, like pretty much always. I'm like a little, yeah. I yeah, don't, yeah. I don't like basically buying. I, I didn't buy a new piece of clothing for as long as I can remember. Really? <laughs> I always buy second-hand clothing, basically. That's and nice. also, I have two older brothers, which means that I get a lot of stuff from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you set this up now. I'm, I'm curious, uh, are there other changes you notice in your appearance when you're in the camp versus uh, Yeah, yeah. I would say maybe like, like I care a little bit less. Like wearing long trousers is quite important for like cultural reasons. It's preferable to wear long trousers. Not like necessarily for the organization that I with. It's not a demand for other organization. It is a requirement when you're in the camp. I think most of the residents they don't care that much to be honest. But but it's preferable to wear long trousers. So that would be something. And normally I wouldn't. I would probably wear shorts on a day like this. Um, and that, yeah, I wear the vest, you know, it's like a kind of an official sort of like NGO vest uh, with a logo on. So that's obviously like an ob- really obvious change like, that occurs. But, yeah. It really creates a strong impression too. And yeah. it changes the way I, I look at you differently now yeah, without it. I but think I'm not wearing this it. This might yeah. be only the second time I've seen you out of it. Yeah, that's interesting. It feels yeah. really different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really creates an aura of authority. Yeah, exactly. And, and power almost. Yeah. And I think on some level that is actually the that is the point um, because I mean maybe not for all volunteers but because uh, I'm the coordinator as well that do you encounter a lot of occasions where you need to assert your authority yeah not because people are particularly violent or aggressive but you have to say no sometimes when people demand some things of you and I think wearing a it's the basic principle of having a uniform yeah. 
basically you you represent the organization and uh, and the authority that comes with that so yeah, I think that's a good point. This amazing thing happened the other day one of the Echo people looked up at the writing above the window the distribution window yeah. there's you know Arabic uh, Kurdish and Farsi yeah and she said hmm, I've been here like five months and I've never learned the word yes oh really Oh, she yeah. just said no, no, no yeah. to people, you know? Interesting. And then she realized she never had need to say yes. Yeah. You know, that whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's some, that's, uh, that's a sentiment that I can really uh, sympathize with in terms of like, it is something you say no a lot because you have to, because uh, resources are scarce and uh, you have to prioritize when you give things. And lots of volunteers complain about that. We wish we could do more, we wish we could give more. We have a warehouse full of stuff, which to like, initially might seem like there's a lot of stuff in there. You have like, oh look at all this shampoo we have. But then you think about it, it's for 600 people. So if you have 600 bottles of shampoo, that's like basically only like a week's worth of yeah. shampoo yeah. for the entire camp. And if we don't refill that, and if we don't have a backup stock, uh, that creates a huge sanitary problem for the entire camp. Yeah. So, if we were reckless with what we gave out, in the long run, from like a strategic perspective, it would be worse. Yeah. Even though, of course, it feels completely like horrible to say no to like a small bottle of shampoo to someone who's asking you when you have 600 bottles. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I think that's where like having a system where you manage it in an organized way is so important and you try as little as possible to sway from that system but then of course there's always exceptions because there are emergencies and so on and so forth and those are the kind of like I would say almost practical but also on some level ethical dilemmas yeah. when do you do an exception you know, we don't take any residents of the camp in the cars because of a hundred different reasons that's not a good idea it creates maybe an error favoritism and we can't take everybody so then it's better to take nobody for the sake of fairness and, and also there are insurance problems and the police might be legal issues and so on but then you know if a kid is sick and needs to go to the hospital and the ambulance is half an hour away obviously you make an exception but where do you draw that line and like how sick does the child have to be or how great of an emergency does it have to be to make an exception so Constantly, every day, you're faced with these kind of more dilemmas uh, when you are like a service provider, if you want, or an NGO in a, in a refugee camp. Do you feel like practice gives you a better sense of where that line is? Do you uh, feel like you're getting closer to knowing? I think you get, yeah, both yes and no, because if you don't, if like a problem if you like the longer you stay in a refugee camp the closer ties you are, are bound to get with certain individuals in that camp and just having those personal bonds even if it's just simple saying good, good morning every single day that's very easy as well to, <laughs> to create um like without even knowing yourself to create famous somehow but yeah sure on some level as well it's it's practice um, so I have to confess, I have a bag full of oranges and figs. Uh -huh. I've finally broken down after two weeks, yeah, yeah. and I just I can't keep eating uh, the, yeah, the stuffed yeah. zucchinis yeah. without giving anything back. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna do it. Yeah, yeah. Unless you tell me no, right now you think it's uh, not good. I, just when I go to yeah. have tea in people's tents, I want to just give sure. something small, you know. I think that's, I think that's fair enough. Like, 
I think maybe it's that's I think that is fine mm -hmm. like in these kind of like yeah exchange if you have tea sure you give some oranges or whatever bring in like a personal gift in a sense what becomes problematic is for example if I would go back in the warehouse and pull out a pair of shoes yeah 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 or like go down into the warehouse and take something from the organization right right uh, whereas like I know lots of people they even you know yeah they bring chocolates or whatever they ask them to do favors my kind of take on that is that like when you're on shift you never run errands mm -hmm. like if someone asks you could you go to the supermarket and buy me something then that's definitely a no uh, but if you're a guest in someone's tent and you bring a small gift from your personal pockets then I think that's I think that's even positive yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. okay so let's pull back a second can you describe where we are uh, Okay, geographically, we are uh, on an island. There's lots of uh, yeah. interceding noises. Yeah. This is probably the air force <laughs> flying above us uh, that are responsible for the camp where we're volunteering. <laughs> uh, no, we're on an island um, that is called Evia, uh, in a city called Chalkida, which is um, kind of an industrial town, uh, southern, Greece, uh, it's about an hour north of Athens, on the mainland, uh, it's really closely connected to the mainland. Uh, we are also, on a broader perspective, we're in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, which means that we are really on the front line of Europe, where the refugee crisis has, to, uh, on par with Italy, like really struck Europe at the hardest. It's very visible if you travel around here, in this area, there are several refugee camps. And, uh, we're also in a way like in the beginning of European civilization, which is really interesting. You really notice that as well. Uh, so much history and culture in this area in general. And right now we both are on the sidewalk by the water. It's quite nice. <laughs> a forced break. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, a forced break. Yeah. So those are the different levels of of our geographical position. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the, the most detailed uh, descriptions I've gotten here, which is fantastic, I love it. So, what role has movement played in your life, in shaping you? Um, you mean like traveling, uh, moving yeah. in you general? moved around a lot? I, I think, so there's like two answers to that question, and because this is something I think about a lot, because I think it's shaped a lot of who I am. Like, on the one hand, uh, I always had, like, a place, which is a small village in Sweden, in southern Sweden, where I would always consider it to be my home. It's where my parents live right now. With a, yeah, with a short break, that's where they've been living, pretty much. It's where my mother is from as well. Um, but then I went to boarding school from the age of 11. Wow. So that made me, like, move. Uh, it's really early at a very early age, yeah. And then also I lived uh, in, a, in a flat on my own from 15 to 18. Wow. So, uh, in, and not with my parents. So that was like also like geographically moving. Uh, and also my parents are like ultra liberal when it comes to upbringing. Yeah. So like if I wanted to do something, like travel on my own through Europe with like a backpack, they would allow for that when I was like 14. 
Uh, did you do that? And I did that as well, yeah, on several occasions. Several every occasions. Summer, actually, yeah, so every summer I would like just backpack around Europe on my own as well, mostly. Or once I did it with like, a good friend of mine, another time I did it on my own. Uh, the third time I kind of visited more like friends and family like, as I was going along. And then I, tra- then I moved, and that I think gave me quite a lot of courage when it comes to traveling. So when I was 18, I moved to Syria before the war. Uh, what year was this? Uh, that was in 2007. Yeah. Uh, Talk a little more about that. How did that come up? Um, so, I think there was like the general trend of xenophobia and racism in Sweden. Uh, really? There was has been going on for like almost a decade, especially like maybe not only in Sweden, like all over Europe. It's so strange. Like yeah. I just have the impression that Sweden is so open and yeah, I would generous. say the vast majority of the population is, and they 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 don't have those kind of opinions. But it's definitely on the rise, and it was already back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought like that was quite frustrating. The depiction of Islam in the media, and maybe the depiction of like Iraqis at that time were coming to Sweden as refugees, and that was had some like social issues surrounding that so I thought I wanted to go to somewhere where like I could more like get really an understanding for it and also there was kind of an adventure and Syria actually at that time was quite a good option because first of all it was really cheap so I could live there uh, pretty much indefinitely uh, you know like it was the cheapest country I ever visited by far uh, I had like uh, I didn't have any friends there, but I had like a friend of a friend who talked a lot about it, um, what it was like. So then I actually applied for the University of Damascus and was accepted pretty much like straight away. Uh, Arabic course there, and um, yeah, I just went for it, and it was it's really exciting. I mean, it was completely new experience. Obviously, there was uh, in many ways it's easy to make it seem as a little piece of heaven before the war, but that obviously wasn't the case. There was uh, a brutal dictatorship, and uh, under the surface uh, there were obviously a lot of tro- trouble. Uh, I mean, the media was really, really clamped down on, so it was difficult to even know exactly everything that was happening, even if I was living there. Uh, but uh, and the poverty as well was really present. The fact that there were one million Iraqi refugees as well, that made a huge uh, impact on, on Syria as a country, and I met a lot of Iraqi people. A lot of them are really highly educated, actually, from, uh, from Iraq. And uh, so that was... I made a lot of friends uh, from Iraq. And the neighborhood where I was living was uh, right next to a neighborhood where there were a lot of Iraqis living. I lived actually in a neighborhood that was a social project in a, made by Hafez al-Assad, like the current president of Syria's father, yeah. uh, to like mix all Syrian uh, nationalities. So there were like Alawites, Kurds, uh, Christians of different denominations. Um, there were like all the different groups of Syria were living in that neighborhood. So it was super interesting. Like my neighbor was speaking one language and the next one was drinking alcohol and the one after that was like a really orthodox uh, or like um, really religiously pious uh, Muslim or whatever but it made the neighborhood quite nice and what's interesting it was a poor neighborhood because you think that that would have been a wealthy neighborhood because yeah, but not necessarily it was actually quite a poor neighborhood there was no asphalt on the road like on my road so like 
Yeah, it was a great time. And then I actually went, and then I went back and I started university. I randomly decided to study at the University of Birmingham in the UK. <laughs> Just uh, yeah, I, actually I applied for like a couple of much better universities mm -hmm. and that was my backup. But I didn't get into like, uh, yeah, the other ones. All in the UK though. And, uh, and then I, yeah, and then I moved to Birmingham uh, to live there. First year I didn't know a single person and I moved directly from Syria to Birmingham. Uh, which was kind of weird as well. <laughs> that must have been intense culture shock, I mean. Yeah, like, in many ways, so like Birmingham is a peculiar city because it's like 50% Pakistani, Bangladeshi immigrants. 50%? Yeah. Wow. Uh, or the descendants of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah like the community is Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian. Uh, and it's like really living in the UK. Like, it's like most... Uh, other Europeans who move to, to the UK to move to London but that's obviously like a bubble it's like moving to New York or something whereas like living in Birmingham you like that's that, that's really moving to 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 a completely different country but the university is good and I got really into studying and I met lots of good people and, and that was nice and we lived there for three years and that's where I met my wife as well uh, and she actually, she's French, but she lived in, in Birmingham for six years. <laughs> wow. Uh, in total. Um, but it was really great for us because that's where, first of all, that made us both speak English without any problem, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, when you're a couple, really important to be able to communicate, communicate perfectly, even though I speak a bit of French, she speaks a bit of Swedish. English is definitely and will always be like our common language, I would say. Uh, we could spend hours just talking about that. I yeah, mean, that is yeah. such a rich vein to explore. That, uh, yeah. I mean, being in love in a second language. You know? Yeah, like, that's interesting. Yeah, and also like getting to. So I learned French well, like not well, but well enough to like speak it uh, on like an everyday basis after I met her. Mm. So that is like almost getting to know another person in a way. Yeah. So I see that there are like mannerisms and cultural like details that are slightly different. Like it's not that the ethical or moral core of the person is different, but there are definitely details that are different. It's true. Yeah. And I notice it with myself when I speak Swedish as well. Yeah. Like for example, uh, I notice that I can joke more when I speak Swedish. Yes. Like I'm funnier when I speak Swedish because I guess it comes more naturally when it's your first language somehow. I don't know. It's, I don't know. This is something that I notice myself like when we're in a dinner party or whatever. Yeah. It's absolutely true. You have to have a certain confidence to make a joke yeah. and a command yeah. of the language. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And faking dialects, for example, or accents. Yeah. That's very difficult in a second language. Yeah. But I can like pull off like a whole number of regional dialects in Swedish. Yeah. But in English, I almost can't do that at all. Yeah. Even though I, yeah. Even though I lived in Birmingham for three years, for example, I don't know how you to don't imitate have a the Birmingham. British accent, yeah. And I don't have a British accent either, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't know how to imitate it either. Yeah. Even now. Yeah. Which, uh, whereas an American who lived in the UK for three years, I'm pretty sure they would pull off quite a good like British accent Probably. if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or at least many people would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. Uh, so how is travel connected to what you're doing now? Um, in a sense, I'm traveling now as well, yeah. because this is not really my home country. I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't call the house where I'm living with now with like 15 other volunteers home in any like <laughs> significant way. Like it is like, 
I guess some ways like I'm going home now to go rest, but but still. Uh, but that's the problem. Like you almost like for me because we're an international couple, me and Claire, and we both lived outside of our home countries for yeah, it's like almost ten years now. Uh, we we like constantly traveling in a way. It's like it never stops. Um, I think for me it would be moving back to Sweden, to like some southern Sweden or Copenhagen maybe. But that would be kind of traveling for her. <laughs> yeah. Unless we lived there for a really long time. Yeah. You know, unless we lived there for a couple of years, a few years, then maybe she would start like really feeling that that is her home. And the same goes for me, but vice versa if we were to move to like Lyon, for example, which is where she lives and where she's from in southern France. Yeah, you're in an interesting position. Perpetual, yeah. Uh, yeah, like vagabonds in some strange way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like constantly moving, but we move a lot. Now. We like we 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 lived over the last since after university. We moved to London, then I moved to Jordan, then to Copenhagen, then to Stockholm, then back to Copenhagen, then to Brussels, and then here. Do you find it to be healthy or unhealthy for you? Uh, I think it's a. It, I think. I think for me it's healthy. I think I wouldn't have. I would definitely wouldn't have done it any other way. The last ten years, if I could have chosen, like if I could relive it, the last ten years, I definitely would travel as much as I, I have. And not only when we're living, also when we are somewhere, we constantly travel as well. Uh, like let's say now, for example, we've been to several places in Greece already uh, since we came here uh, and I think it's healthy I think you become more uh, I think like at least for me I understood people better it made me slightly more I don't know yeah I think I, I think I, I think it made me understand the world better maybe it's not for everyone though I don't know but for me I think it was positive yeah. Uh, but of course, it's easy to become ruthless as well if you live a really long time outside, uh, or if you never stay a very long time in the same place, you become kind of ruthless. But that's what I was saying in the beginning that I always had this village in southern Sweden where I have a whole group of old friends that you know when I was married, got married, they were they all came and I see them on a regular basis when I go home for Christmas or whatever, and I really kept like a strong sort of connection with them always and uh, I really don't want to lose that so so I think it is important as well to have some some kind of like stable place where you always feel that it's, uh, it's home and Claire has that as well in, in Lyon is that group of friends are they travelers also uh, or no? lots of them are but lots of them aren't yeah I always like I always people laugh when they come to the village because it's a small town huh? there's like 3,000 people and out of my 10, 15 close childhood friends. It's like a big group of guys, mostly. Uh, I would say about half have foreign girlfriends. So it's like Spanish, French, Brazilian, uh, German. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a mix of people. I don't know if that's a coincidence. Like maybe that is like somehow related to the fact that everyone, well, partly because lots of people traveled and lived abroad for a while and met people. But also just like that 
time and place where we were brought up in southern Sweden, right on the border to Denmark, as the European Union. Like, you know, I was like maybe seven or eight when Sweden joined the European Union, which opened so many possibilities for everyone in society to actually start traveling in Europe. Like the first generation of Swedish people where it's completely normal to do an undergraduate degree in the UK. Mm. Like that was something that maybe like only 25 years ago would have been considered a very elite thing to do. Whereas now it's like a middle class thing to do. So in that sense, uh, yeah, lo lots of my friends, they travel, they travel a lot. Some of them also just stayed, worked, uh, they have kids and stuff, uh, living in a slightly bigger town nearby where I'm brought up. And they have a good life as well, huh? And yeah, they're good yeah, people, yeah. like, they, 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 they're not necessarily, like, close-minded or anything. So, that's why I think it's, it's not a prerequisite for, like, learning about the world and becoming more, sort of, like, sympathetic to other cultures and so on. But for me, it definitely, I think it helped. Yeah. Uh, especially understanding other cultures, I would say. It helped me doing it. Because that's what I want. I'm not saying I necessarily like, understand everything yet, by no means. But I think it, that is my goal, to understand more of other cultures. And I think traveling really helps. Yeah. Alright, so I hope this is only the beginning of a much longer conversation and conversations. Uh, but I want to just ask my last yeah. question, which is, can you tell me a good travel story? Uh, I should have thought about this before because uh, uh, that is a good uh, that's a good question. Uh, I almost have to think for a second. Take your time. There are so like so many weird things happen when you travel. Like okay, it has a bit of context, but I think it's a good one because it was a thing that happened with me and my brother. He came when I was living in Syria. He came to visit me, and he's seven years older than me. And I always had a really conflictuous relationship to him and uh, this one uh, uh, yeah but he came to visit me anyway and we were kind of like for the first time I would say we like had a really good time together actually uh, I was 18 so I was still quite young but we were also kind of now on my turf a little bit mm. which made it so that for the first time in our relationship like maybe I was the one like taking initiative like this is what we should do and so on and uh, we rented a car and we drove out in the desert and then maybe like 50, like 50 kilometers like quite far into the <laughs> desert they, we ran out of gas because the car rental place hadn't like filled it up because we just assumed that we would have like yeah, uh. we stupidly ran out of gas uh. and then uh, I just jumped out of the car I was like it's fine I'll sort it out and I stuck out my thumb as a hitchhiker, because this is a Middle Eastern culture, like the first car that picked me up, uh, the first car that passed picked me up, and I just like shot off with a car. You just left? Yeah, roll. and he was like, no, no, wait, because he was freaking out. I was like, no, it's fine. And then, uh, uh, like two hours later, he just saw like a small dot at the horizon coming walking with like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you call it? Like a petrol like a um, container. container yeah. 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 <laughs> and that was like, I think that was, I don't know why I came to think of that story. But I was like kind of like stupidly 18. He was freaking out completely because we didn't like, couldn't call each other as well on the phone. Was he angry with you? When yeah, you got no, there? he wasn't. Yeah, he was kind of like after that, uh, I don't know. Were you kind of like 
wanting to leave him behind, like no. show him, you know, yeah, I, I got think this. That was it. Yeah, I it's like, I, I can take care of this, yeah. But I don't know, that was kind of a funny travel story because it worked out well. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he always tells the story, at least to his, like, yeah, it was so crazy you did that. So you just jumped in a car and left me behind. <laughs> yeah, but I came back with breath petrol. <laughs> Well, thank you so much right. for sharing and thank you for speaking English. Okay, my pleasure. And, uh, <laughs> I, I really mean it. I hope, you know, I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, yeah most again. me too. Uh, yeah. The truth is a pathless land. Tiziano Terzani.